Global Governance Futures is brought to you from the Global Governance Institute at University College London. This is a podcast about the challenges facing humanity and possible global responses. How does the world hang together? What has gone wrong? And what has global governance got to do with it? To learn more, please visit ucl.ac.uk forward slash global dash governance. Today's episode is a conversation we had with Amitav Acharya, Professor of International Relations at American University in Washington, D.C. Now, Amitav is a top scholar on the ASEAN network and its member states, and his celebrated books include The End of the American World Order, among many, many others. He's made important contributions to the fields of Asian regionalism and constructivism. There is no single point of origin of world order, including the current world order, which we mistakenly mislevel as liberal international order. Uh, there are multiple global points of origin, sometimes diffused, uh, learning from each other, sometimes independently created. Uh, like, for example, uh, cotton, which uh, we all wear. Cotton was cultivated independently in Peru and India about the same time. So there are no contact with each other. Now, in this episode today, we talk about the multiple origin stories of world order that challenges the universalism of liberal internationalism that has its roots in the work of Kant, among many, many others. We ask Amitav about his notion of pluralistic universalism when addressing key concepts such as human rights, and also what both knowledge makers and knowledge seekers can or should do to address the issues we face today. We hope you enjoy this episode of Global Governance Futures with Amitav Acharya. Amitav, it's, it's great to have you on the podcast. Um, we've been looking forward to this one for a while. Before we get into some of the more meaty aspects of this, I, I think you've cited uh, Jawaharlal Nehru, the first Indian Prime Minister, as a kind of formative influence for you. Uh, looking at liberal internationalism. And I wonder if you could expand on that, you know, for someone who might not have really come to, to grips with that term, what liberal internationalism might look like from South Asia. Yeah, um, Nehru is a good point of reference for liberal internationalism, especially if you're growing up in India and also in parts of the global South, because he had uh, quite a lot of influence on uh, what today we call Global South and uh, what we uh, used to call the Third World. He was a major uh, leader, figure at the 1955 uh, Asia-Africa Conference in Bandung. Um, so he had a lot of influence. And certainly growing up in India, he was a major influence on anybody who wants to study politics, foreign policy, and international relations. That includes me. I remember having a, uh, a framed picture of Nehru and uh, John F. Kennedy uh, in uh, my father's uh, uh, study come bedroom. Uh, and, uh, and we saw it every day um, growing up. Uh, so Nehru was widely admired and as was actually John F. Kennedy. Uh, and there was a picture of them strolling together uh, in the White House lawn during Nehru's visit when Kennedy was president. Now that image stayed with me. And uh, two years ago, when I was asked to speak to the con uh, the convocation of my university. Um, and uh, I was uh, given an award, the uh, university's highest award called Scholar Teacher of the Year in 2020. And uh, part of the award's obligation is to uh, give a convocation speech to the students. And uh, I actually put that picture 
um, on on the screen. It was a video lecture uh, because John F. Kennedy is very closely associated with my university. Uh, he actually gave his very famous uh, disarmament speech uh, in 1963 uh, in my university. Um, and I will still have a spot where he gave the speech. Uh, it was outdoors. So I gave the speech and I mentioned that um, I grew up with that picture of Nehru and Kennedy uh, walking almost step by step uh, in sync uh, on the White House lawn. And it was a very powerful image for me when, when I thought about, uh, or I still think about uh, international order and uh, liberal international order. I did not know the term liberal then. I just thought about uh, peace, uh, cooperation, friendship. Uh, and uh, that was, uh, that, that's pretty much sums up in a way, a lot of Indians growing up uh, will look at uh, the world, that there is a positive side uh, and, uh, and uh, nations can cooperate. Uh, so countries as different as India and uh, United States uh, can cooperate. Uh, but uh, at the same time, there's also a darker side that are people, leaders who are not like Kennedy, not like Nehru, and, uh, and they also have uh, their uh, say. Uh, so it kind of introduced a, both a positive uh, image or vision in my head uh, about world order, but also created a benchmark against which I could judge other types of leaders. Now, as I look back, of course, I know a lot more than, uh, about international relations. Uh, and I do know that uh, uh, that image of Kennedy and Nehru uh, was a bit of an aberration because India actually uh, became the closest ally, uh, one of the closest uh, ally of the Soviet Union. Uh, and the uh, United States basically uh, became almost an enemy of India um, because of the support of the United States for, uh, uh, for Pakistan. And also, uh, even before Kennedy, Eisenhower administration was very hostile towards India uh, in terms of creating uh, alliances like uh, Southeast Asia Treaty Organization, which Nehru strongly opposed at the Bandung Conference. So um, the moral of the story is that it gave me a, a very early start into thinking of a world order in terms of uh, alternative uh, modes, alternative ways of organizing world order. I actually uh, would any day vote for Nehru and Kennedy than say Eisenhower or uh, Richard Nixon, uh, or uh, I have to say that uh, the current Indian uh, leadership, uh, which is moved completely away from Nehru. But that's my, my, my own uh, bias. Uh, but uh, I think uh, you can look at uh, internationalism in that way that uh, countries can cooperate, rich and poor. Uh, in India had a more of a socialist leaning under Nehru, he was already a socialist country. Uh, I mean, socialist leaning to a socialist economy, uh, more state intervention, state enterprise rather than free market. But Kennedy on the other hand, had a very global vision of a cooperation, uh, including with countries like India, which uh, the United States has not replicated uh, since then in my view. So we do need to think in those terms. Um, one other point is that the term liberal was not in my, uh, my vocabulary. And I think it is unfortunate that uh, liberal qualifies internationalism because liberal uh, liberalism or liberal internationalism or liberal hegemony, which are kind of the buzzwords uh, in the last 
few years of debate about the future of world order. They have a lot of baggage. Uh, I personally, uh, if you tell me Nehru was championing liberal internationalism, I would not support Nehru. I thought he was an internationalist. He actually was a socialist in many ways, not liberal. Um, liberalism has a lot of baggage uh, in the name of liberal internationalism, liberal international order, uh, United States, and uh, its uh, academic and uh, policy uh, intellectuals have uh, actually condoned a lot of uh, uh, unfortunate or dark negative uh, things in international relations, uh, including intervention, including um, policies that actually ended up supporting uh, non-democratic states, uh, abuses of human rights, uh, while taking a lot of credit for that this is liberal international and did this. We cannot have uh, peace and prosperity without uh, in the world without the liberal international order. So that was the point of my book, uh, The End of American World Order, uh, published first in 2014. When I took on this uh, term liberal hegemony and liberal international order, um, I thought I have no problem with uh, internationalism, but liberal internationalism, liberal has a baggage, which uh, one has to acknowledge. And that baggage is uh, uh, not being uh, seen in, uh, in, in the way it should be in the advocacy of liberal internationalism and liberal order. Um, so I would uh, say uh, liberal internationalism is good. Liberal internationalism as a concept uh, cannot be to me, acceptable unless it acknowledges all the uh, baggage and all the negative uh, <clears throat> policy uh, outcomes that has come out of that uh, ideology, especially from the United States and the and the Western countries. Thank you, Amitav. That's really helpful. So I'd like to just flesh that out a little more, actually. So you're pointing at this kind of the impoverished kind of <laughs> sense of internationalism that we have today. And I've been struck looking at the historical record that there were much bolder statements of what internationalism could be in the in the 50s through into the 60s and 70s. People like uh, Laswell, people like uh, Folk. And you do have some individuals like Tom Weiss now, these sort of constructive critics of the current order who, in his article, uh, What Happened to World Government?, um, or global government. He actually quotes Nehru. He says, Nehru um, said in 1956 that the only way to look ahead assuredly is for some kind of world order, one world to emerge. And I'd be curious to ask, how do you interpret these words of, of Nehru? I mean, what kind of global governance does his ideas of world order encapsulate? And you mentioned the Bandung Conference. Um, was was this sort of a moment of idealism among the developing countries before the collapse of the, the, the new International Economic Order Initiative and everything else that came later? Um, and how was internationalism understood at this meeting? Yeah. Um, I think, uh, the, again, uh, what happened uh, in terms of Nehru's foreign policy and his role at the Bandung Conference uh, and the conference itself, uh, again, I don't think it fits within uh, liberal internationalism. Uh, liberal internationalism, one of the problems of liberal internationalism is that uh, the liberal claims or the proponents of liberal internationalism claim to have invented everything that is good, like peace, cooperation, friendship. And, uh, and, uh, and, and then they also, uh, they just also claim that all these principles came from Europe. Are European or Western thinkers. 
Uh, so, so they would claim that the liberal internationalism is the best way uh, because it uh, best way to approach world order because it, uh, you know, recognizes the values of interdependence, um, uh, international institutions, democracy, and all of this came out of uh, the West, and the rest of the world should follow it. Uh, that's basically what uh, uh, is the narrative uh, in uh, behind a lot of liberal internationalism talk. Now, that's I I, I challenge because uh, there is no ideology that can claim to have all the good things about the world, and certainly not liberal internationalism. Uh, remember, Marxism was extremely popular uh, in India. In fact, Nehru was an admirer of the Soviet Union uh, for uh, the way Soviet Union built its economy out of the destruction. Uh, uh, of the Second World War. And um, Marxism was very popular uh, in the global South, as was socialism. And uh, so the claim that liberal internationalism has a kind of a monopoly of all the good things, uh, that was uh, that remains one of its biggest problems. Uh, some of the values and the institutions that liberal internationalism claims to have developed, actually were invented and developed in many other parts of the world. And one of that was in India, and one of that is, uh, another one was in Bandung. And uh, uh, for example, uh, Nehru, uh, Nehru uh, well, he did uh, admire Western, some Western writers and thinkers, uh, Harold Lasky, for example, and I think you call him a liberal internationalist, uh, more of a socialist leaning uh, scholar. Uh, but uh, Nehru did uh, have visions about international cooperation and democracy. He was uh, much more of a Democrat than Donald Trump would ever be, uh, just to speak about. So he was very, not just in words, you know, he actually would go to the Indian parliament regularly, answer questions, take criticisms. Uh, his domestic policy as well as foreign policy, he would uh, actually make sure that uh, the state leaders, the ministers, state minister, chief ministers are consulted, uh, very much accountable to the parliament uh, at a time when he didn't have to because he had so much charisma and authority. And uh, so he was a Democrat. He uh, did champion democracy. He did champion uh, universal human rights. He actually supported Universal Declaration on Human Rights at Bandung Conference. And he was definitely a very committed internationalist in terms of institutions and cooperation, including the UN. But he was not really enamored of the West, uh, including the United States. Or, uh, I mean, Britain, of course, he has personal friends, but he also fought against uh, the British uh, colonial power. So, uh, you know, it is actually quite ironic. I think I... Uh, mentioned uh, this in my new article on race and racism in the making of a uh, founding of world order uh, in international affairs. That when the UN general, UN charter was being drafted in San Francisco, 1945, India was still under colonial rule. Uh, so we still have a, a British viceroy, uh, will be until 1947. But the uh, United States, Franklin Roosevelt actually kindly allowed India to be represented in the San Francisco conference. But who represents India? Well, <laughs> there's a guy called Ramasamy Mudalia. Uh, he was a member of the Viceroy's War Cabinet because the war was going on still, and, uh, and also a representative of his uh, advisory group. Where was Jawaharlal Nehru? In prison, 
he was in British prison. So I uh, make the point that uh, had Nehru been in San Francisco, as opposed to a viceroy's uh, advisor, who did a pretty good job, by the way, nothing wrong with uh, Modalier. Uh, but maybe the UN uh, uh, charter would have been much more friendly towards uh, uh, post-colonial or uh, uh, the cause of decolonization and anti-racism. Now, in the end, the UN charter doesn't mention, the preamble doesn't mention colonialism. It doesn't mention racism. Uh, and uh, this is the big point of my article. I was stunned to find that how little of colonialism and racism is mentioned in the entire San Francisco conference proceedings. Uh, of course, we have anti-racial discrimination as one of the human rights principles, but it's not in the preamble. Sovereign equality is mentioned rather than racial equality. It's not mentioned. And, uh, and uh, imperialism and colonialism, which were the most important features of uh, the 1940s, uh, the world order preceding that, is not mentioned in the preamble. So non-intervention sovereign equality gets precedence over racism and racial equality, which is uh, one of the re reasons why we still suffer the legacies of uh, racism. If Nehru was uh, in the conference, you, uh, he would have made a big, bigger intervention. Now, when he went to Bandung in 1955, the Bandung leaders actually very clearly from day one until the very end of the conference in the final communique, they said the biggest challenge to the peace and security of the world is uh, the problems of uh, racialism, colonialism, or imperialism. They actually used the term colonialism and uh, human rights. So they made an equation between the existence of colonialism, they use the term racialism and denial of human rights. That, uh, that colonialism was a big form of denial of human rights. The Universal Declaration of Human Rights made no mention of this. So, uh, so, so that's why the Bandung leaders, uh, led by India in that time, said that uh, colonialism is a form of denial of human rights, very specific, in a sense, so bridging the gap that was left by the UN Charter and the Universal Declaration. And uh, that, to me, is internationalism. Uh, um, you can call it liberal internationalism or anti-racial internationalism. The term I would use is anti-racial internationalism uh, coming from the global south. Uh, and Nehru was a major contributor. And we still suffer from the legacy of uh, the liberal internationalist uh, uh, moment in the San Francisco conference by not mens by by giving lesser priority to racial equality vis-a-vis uh, -vis sovereign equality and non-intervention, which are mentioned, by the way, in the UN Charter preamble. The world got a you know racist regimes like South Africa got a blank check basically to continue with racial oppression, uh, and uh, and uh, even though you know uh, they. Uh, they have sovereign equality. They can hide behind non-intervention. Non-intervention is in the charter. Racial equality is not in the charter. So, so that's that's the difference I'm talking about between the liberal internationalist, the traditional liberal internationalist vision of world order, and what we need today, what has been neglected, what has been championed by countries of the global south, Nehru and other leaders of Bandung. By the way, the United Nations finally woke up to it. And after Bandung Conference, few years after, they actually adopted a resolution that almost word by word used the Bandung language. 
that the problems that uh, we face are uh, basically racialism, colonialism, and the denial of human rights. Uh, so, but just imagine if that was in the UN Charter. You know, the Charter does have legitimacy. You know, everybody lists the UN Charter. The children, when they study the United Nations, they look at the Charter. Uh, so not having racial equality mentioned there uh, gives it less of a gravitas than, say, non-intervention and uh, sovereignty and uh, territorial integrity. And, uh, one of the other aspects I loved about that uh, paper, the 2022 Race and Racism paper, is your the, the fact that you bring up, for example, Johann Gottfried Herder uh, alongside Kant and then uh, James Tyrrell alongside Locke as kind of an example that racism wasn't just part and parcel of the time and just, oh, that, that it was just the way it was back then. There were people at that time talking about issues that we're talking about now and trying to solve now. And so I suppose I have two kind of interrelated questions. One, uh, how can we, was that a willful ignorance that we maintain now to these early ideas? Um, was that a kind of planned or was that a, just it happened by accident that we just forgot these voices? And then secondly, how are we supposed to, as scholars, interact with Kant and Locke? Do we need to throw them out because of these racist views or do we need to interact with them in a kind of more measured way? Yeah. Um, you know, a lot depends on how we educate ourselves. I mean, to be very honest, I did not know that Kant had this uh, profoundly, explicitly racist views uh, and, uh, until a few years ago. Until I started, I mean, I am a big admirer of Kant, universalism, peace. I had some issues about uh, uh, his stance on colonialism, uh, that uh, he was actually, in a sense, anti-imperial, uh, while still think, saying or implying uh, that uh, uh, the darker countries, the non-European countries still have to follow certain standard of civilization. They, can, they don't deserve independence unless they come up to the European standard of governance. That I was aware of, but I, uh, I was not aware of the profound racism in thinking. So what you ask is there are two, two sides to it. One is that uh, these are arguments made in defense of European and uh, American racist philosophers. By the way, people like John Locke operate across the Atlantic. I mean, he was uh, a drafter of the Constitution of the Carolinas, even if he didn't go there. Uh, so he he uh, he is the biggest inspiration for Thomas Jefferson, who wrote the Declaration of Independence. Even you know same words uh, using uh, words like uh, liberty, courage, pursuit of happiness, in uh, uh, you know, some modification. Uh, but uh, I think the the key there are two things here. One is whether these philosophers are the product of their times. So so they, you know they were writing in the. Uh, you know, 100, 200, 300 years ago, not just Kant, but others. And uh, John Stuart Mill will be another one. Uh, Hegel will be another one. Uh, so, so why we uh, are judging them uh, by the standards of today. And the other one is that, uh, hey, this is not uh, the West. These are some people in the West. Uh, so there are people like Herder and uh, <clears throat> others who actually were critiques of the race, uh, critiques of racism, and they champion equality among all the races. Now, both are important, but I think there are limits to it. Um, of course, what was the ethos? Uh, what was the general overwhelming sort of uh, 
uh, framing framework for world order uh, 200 years ago, 100 years ago. It was racist. So there were dissidents. Uh, there were people who dissented uh, from Kant, dissented from Locke, but they were not uh, really the majority. Uh, they are not the, the most powerful voices. Uh, so if they were, we don't have the United racism in the United States uh, in the way it was embedded into the Constitution uh, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a most hypocritical way, talking about liberty, uh, equality, uh, and pursuit of happiness while decimating the Indians at the same time, the American Indians, Native Indians, and enslaving the blacks. Uh, so, so they were not influential, although we do acknowledge them to expose the hypocrisy uh, and the racism of the leading philosophers. I mean, Locke and Kant are the two leading philosophers uh, of world order. I mean, there are others, but uh, Locke, more in the domestic context, and Kant in the international context. They basically shaped the liberal international order. So that's the first thing, that they were uh, uh, the dissidents. Uh, those who challenged people like Kant and Locke were a minority and didn't have the kind of influence. They were not brought into the drafting of the U.S. Constitution or the Constitution of Carolinas, uh, property rights in, in, in Britain. Uh, and Kant, of course, is considered to be the founder of the philosophy behind universalism. Now, the second thing is uh, that product of their own times. Uh, so, and, uh, and uh, again, true, they are a product of their own time, but we cannot take it too far because we also have uh, positive philosoph philosophers of progress and uh, uh, who are actually also products of their own time. There were, you know, voices, uh, both in the West, but also in the non-West, uh, people like Rabindranath Tagore in India, although a little later, Mahatma Gandhi was already in the uh, well, late 19th, uh, late 19th century, he was already active, uh, who were championing alternative voices. So, so, so the time, product of the times can only go so far. But even if we accept that, we still have to expose the views for what they are, because these are considered universal, timeless views. Liberals don't say the liberal good things about liberal internationalism are only limited to the 20th century. They say it's a timeless wisdom. You know, it, it's an eternal philosophy. It's a universal philosophy, universalism in time and space. Uh, so, so, so that's what uh, is problematic about it. And another thing about Kant I'd like to point out, uh, and I have pointed out in an article, that uh, um, people uh, excuse his racism by saying, okay, uh, he was uh, making these racist statements and, uh, and, and uh, assumptions in his non-political writings, like geography, for example, uh, and in his lectures. Those are produced of his lectures. You are teaching a whole bunch of students in the classroom, so you are saying these things. But his political writings are much more open and uh, accessible, and they are not racist. Now, technically, it is true that uh, a lot of his uh, racist uh, statements and writings are in in his non-political uh, writings, you know, I, I forget anthropology or certainly in uh, in geography and uh, and the like, but uh, that's also inside the classroom. Well, you know, let me give an example. When someone like Hillary Clinton during the presidential campaign, twenty sixteen presidential campaign, he made a statement to some advisors that there is a basket of deplorables that are actually supporting Trump, and uh, uh, somebody sort of leaked it and see lost a lot of votes. Now, so if, is it okay if you say something in the classroom 
and no, it doesn't go out of the classroom. And uh, therefore, you're not a racist. Uh, if Trump said something in a radio interview, private uh, or conversation with, privately with someone uh, before a television interview, uh, uh, making all kinds of uh, uh, horrific comments about women, uh, and you say, oh, he only said that privately. Uh, you know, uh, he didn't say that in public. So, so that's what um, uh, that, that's the same thing about Kant. If Kant said that in the classroom, but he also wrote it up, and they're available. You can all read it. Uh, it doesn't excuse him from racism just because he also had political statements and a political philosophy that's universal. So that's a huge double standard. Uh, and uh, uh, I do acknowledge that Kant's political writings does have elements that are very powerful, uh, gives a powerful support to international cooperation or universalism. But the overall package is tainted. And all we all I'm asking for, we recognize it. Let people know about it. And what has happened is that they are not in the textbooks. Uh, I mean, you, you can go to an international relations textbook, standard, like Introduction to International Relations. And what do you see? You see Kant, Locke mentioned as uh, you know, theorists of liberalism, contractual, uh, social contract, universalism. How much of those, those textbooks tell you that they also had a big impact on racism and slavery? Uh, so when I started international relations in India, as well as uh, my early years in the West, uh, I had no idea because I didn't. I was not taught. My my professors did not teach it to me uh, in introduction to international relations. The textbook did not tell me. So articles that what I wrote is bring this out, make it accessible, and I don't want to go to the other extreme and say all the you know the European whole philosophy was. Uh, uh, blatantly racist, and there were no uh, counter voices uh, to the racism of uh, <clears throat> some of these uh, major philosophers. And even some of these philosophers like Kant and Locke uh, had a kind of a uh, split personality. Locke actually criticized slavery. Uh, he thought slavery was a vile condition. But that same Locke was actually writing a constitution of Carolina that for the first time identified a black, the term Negro, as a slave. Until then, slavery was never identified with a color, a particular color of the skin. You can be a white or a black or a brown and can be a slave. Uh, but uh, Locke's, uh, well, he was not the only author, but the Constitution of Carolina he helped to create, for the first time, singled out that I, I equated Negro with a slave. Uh, so the fact that he personally despising slavery, he said slavery was vile. Okay, he did something later on uh, against uh, against it, but he held shares in the slaveholding Royal African Company, slave trading Royal African Company, wrote the Constitution of Carolina in the in that way, while still not uh, I mean, while still still thinking of slavery as vile tells you how powerful the social forces days were. That uh, if these creatures were these philosophers had real moral strength. They would have spoken of said, I'm not going to write the Constitution of Carolina that way. Uh, and uh, if, if I feel slavery is vile, I'm not going to create a document that says, you know, slavery, uh, all, all the citizens of uh, free citizens of uh, free men of Carolina would have a right, absolute right over his uh, Negro slave. I won't write like that kind of uh, uh, 
I won't insert that kind of clause into a constitutional document. So what I'm trying to say is that we should have more awareness, more uh, uh, revelation, uh, not only among the scholars of race, one, and this is one of the problems we have today. There's a lot of fantastic anti-racist scholarship, uh, especially post-colonialism. Uh, and uh, maybe uh, now it's more fascinable to call it decolonial. But uh, there, this is a conversation among the like-minded in most cases. Uh, you know, it doesn't get into a conversation between uh, them and uh, people who have been teaching international relations in a very different way, uh, including somebody famous uh, scholars of IR. So if we have a conversation, a global conversation, conversation across the table, not among the like-minded, along those lines, and we end up with uh, texts and documents and uh, reading material, uh, syllabi, that actually brings all this together, and not just as one week in one section, but throughout the syllabi and the class, in integrated mainstream into every topic, then we will be able to address the problem of racism uh, and we uh, in, in international studies, uh, at least, and uh, also create a better notion of world order uh, and internationalism rather than the same narrative about liberal internationalism. That's really interesting, Amitabh. And I guess what you were saying earlier, I'd like to go back to a little bit. When we talk about Kant's universalism, and I guess this is a slightly two-part question. The first would be, you know, how have claims to universalism that have come from, you know, the liberal West um, distorted our understanding of what it is to be truly universal in a, in a kind of like non-racist sense? And then linking on from that, you speak about uh, trying to adopt a pluralistic universalism. Could yeah. you explain what that means and what it could look like for our students of global governance or for world order as a whole? Yeah, I mean, this has become a major uh, argument of mine uh, running through uh, a lot of my writings. Uh, in fact, uh, sometimes in a very repetitive way, but sometimes you have to repeat something a few times before people pay attention. So the kind of Kantian universalism, the way I look at it, is the Enlightenment universalism. And uh, the basic premise of that, underlying premise of that, there is a, there is a standard, there's a universal standard that applies to all. Uh, and so that's universal. Uh, so there could be certain type of human rationality, some kind of uh, political uh, institutions, uh, maybe liberal institutions, uh, rights, uh, and the like, cosmopolitanism and the like. So there is one sort of standard that applies to all societies including non-Western societies. So it is inclusive in that sense, that, uh, that uh, you know, uh, everybody can uh, aspire to that standard. But, and the but is very important, that standard was developed in Europe uh, among the European thinkers uh, uh, during the Enlightenment. And uh, it is supposed to be a standard that applies to all. Everybody else must aspire to it. And if you didn't uh, get to that level, standard of civilization, then, well, too bad. You, you, you should stay under colonial rule for a while until you are educated and civilized. That, that to me, were, uh, in, a, in, a, in a, you know, kind of a maybe crude way, but I think uh, I can, um, one can justify that was the case of a lot of the Enlightenment thinking. Now, 
the concept of universalism, which uh, I call pluralistic universalism, and I owe it to my uh, late colleague at York University in Toronto, Robert Cox, uh, who actually uh, first outlined the distinction between uh, the Enlightenment universalism and an alternative vision, which he did not call pluralistic, but I call it pluralistic. But Cox's idea was that, that pluralistic universalism doesn't start with a one size fits all. Uh, true universalism, he did not call it pluralistic. He just said the alternative view of universalism is that one size does not fit all, but it's based on a recognition and respect for diversity. So that means uh, you recognize and respect diversity, and that's universalism. What I did was to take it to the next step. How do you create something out of the diversity? Um, so that will be universal. So I call it pluralistic. There are many ways you can do it. I mean, you can uh, go for another standard, not the enlightenment standard of rationality. What is rationality anyway? Uh, you know, uh, bounded rationality or a total, you know, uh, unlimited rationality or uh, or you can talk about uh, specific institutions. The, the, we can debate that. But you can have an alternative rationality which may be based on uh, cultural uh, uh, specificities and uh, culturally. Every society thinks of itself as universal. I mean, every civilization. The Chinese thought their, their civilization is universal. It's the center of the world. Indians thought they also have a universal civilization. Universal monarchy comes goes back to the uh, to the Egyptians and the Sumerians. Uh, Alexander the Great learned it from the Egyptians and Persians and called himself universal. Universal monarchy is the most successful, most durable political institution in the history of the world. Universal empire is another. So every society thinks of itself as universal. But uh, true universalism is one that recognizes diversity. And how do you create something out of diversity? Instead of uh, having a non-Western culture against a Western culture and uh, having that non-Western culture like Chinese as universal. I think uh, my uh, proposed answer to that question, uh, which is a work in progress, is that you do recognize diversity, you do re respect diversity, as Cox had asked us, but you try to find some common ground. You cannot just leave it that uh, diversity is good for its own sake, um, because that will be another problem. That could lead, lead to chaos. Some people think that's fine. I mean, who are we to think what is uh, universalism? But uh, as, a, uh, as a someone who is actually committed to having some sort of a world order uh, rather than world disorder or chaos, I think it is possible and one should try to find common elements among these different types of uh, universalisms. The Chinese universalism, the Indian universalism, the uh, Kantian universalism. And such possibilities, such common ground does exist. I can give you many examples, uh, but uh, I've been, I'm still working on it. But, um, for example, uh, humanitarian laws of war, uh, that uh, civilians should not be killed or harmed, or somebody who is disarmed, uh, somebody who is wounded, somebody who is asleep, uh, even if uh, that person is a soldier, should not be harmed. This is Geneva Conventions. Now, you can find almost word-to-word echoes of that in Indian text called Code of Manu, word by word. I have written it in one of my articles. You can find that in Confucian ethics, just and unjust wars. You can find that in Islamic ethics. Uh, again, every, every civilization has produced 
multiple types of ethics, uh, some uh, positive, progressive, some dark and uh, militaristic, uh, or a very kind of based on very narrow in, um, self-interested logic. But uh, every society, every civilization has a positive ethics that is inclusive, humane, and respects the, uh, the safety and dignity of uh, non-combatants and defeated uh, or uh, soldiers who have surrendered, surrendered. So why can't we find a common element from that? Uh, so, you know, when I read about the responsibility to protect, uh, which is our to be known, uh, a lot of the early discourse about where it came from goes back to Christian ethics. Uh, so, you know, uh, Josh War ethics, which is very well known. But the same ethics can be found in many other civilizations. So, so in one of my writings, I said that, you know, uh, we should really think of R to P as a universal, based on a set of universal ethics that has, that has its foundation in many civilizations and not just a Christian just war logic. So that's basically what is pluralistic universalism, that it is uh, not only possible to find such things, uh, but I mean, well, it is not only desirable, but it is actually possible to find common ground. Uh, and when I talk about common ground, people, of course, jump at it and say, some people, they said, oh, common ground means the lowest common denominator. I said, well, when you say lowest, lowest is still better than having one society and civilization imposing its values on other. But that lowest is not really that limited. There is a huge common ground. You know, lowest doesn't mean it's narrow. It can be quite broad, actually, uh, broad areas of agreement. By the way, we are all human beings, aren't we? Uh, so there's a human ethics involved. There are many ways in which we think, act in the same way, just because we're simply human. We think of human rights as rights everyone enjoys just by being human, period. Okay? So we should also have ethics that we should all develop and enjoy just by being human. And why, therefore, we can't find this common ground out of uh, different cultures and civilizations. This may sound idealistic, and another idealistic person talking about uh, we are all uh, brothers and sisters. But actually, it is not just idealistic. It is very pragmatic. Uh, that's the only way you can sell ideas like human rights and democracy. You cannot sell human rights to people by saying, Human rights were invented in uh, Britain, Magna Carta, or French Revolution, but everybody should uh, accept it. It's much better to say that human rights have origins in multiple locations, sometimes spread through uh, diffusion, but sometimes independently created without any <clears throat> interaction among civilizations. And they have different dimensions. Uh, like, for example, Magna Carta was basically about property rights. You know, you have a sword on the neck of King John and say, sign this or else we'll throw you out. It's, it's a violent uh, origins of human rights based on brute force. And the Pope rejected it anyway, uh, <clears throat> few, um, less than a year later. Now, uh, the French Revolution, how bloody it was. Uh, but there are also elements of uh, what Amartya Sen calls uh, in the proto-human rights, like uh, King Ashoka of India. Uh, third century BC, who said that his judicial magistrates will go around to check whether that innocent people don't suffer from unjust, cruel punishment, unjust, cruel punishment. So you look around and then you'll find that, well, there are actually support for universal human rights 
from multiple civilizations. Instead of saying, we created this in the West and you accept it because that's the only way, that's the best way. This is counterproductive. Uh, and uh, that's what I'm saying. A pragmatic approach to human rights, not just idealistic, would be to actually tra trace out its multiple global origins. And I can tell you, um, one of my projects I'm trying to finish now is a book about the origins of world order. It goes back to 5,000 years of history. And I found many examples of ideas that we take for granted as coming from one place that has multiple origins. I'd be very interested to read your your work um, about the 5,000 years of civilization when it comes out. Do you have a, a, a release date for that? Well, all I can say is that it's a 5,000 history of world order. I call it from Sumeria to America. Uh, so it basically looks at how ideas about world order evolved. And, uh, and the argument is that there is no single point of origin of world order, including the current world order, which we mistakenly mislevel as liberal international order. Uh, there are multiple global points of origin, sometimes diffused, uh, learning from each other, sometimes independently in created. Uh, like, for example, uh, cotton, which uh, we all wear. Cotton was cultivated independently in Peru and India about the same time. So they are no contact with each other. Uh, and the uh, law of the sea was independently created in Mediterranean and Indian Ocean, more so in the Indian Ocean. Like, I don't say law of the sea, but freedom of the seas. Uh, so many institutions, republicanism was created independently, but sometimes a diffusion. On the other hand, the most successful international political institution in the history of the world called divine monarchy was actually developed in Sumer and Egypt partly in relation to each other, but partly independently. And it was brought into the West by Alexander the Great uh, when he conquered Egypt and Persia. Instead of making himself a Democrat, he was a student of Aristotle. But instead of uh, creating democracy, he anointed himself as the pharaoh of Egypt and the great king of Persia. And then from him, Augustus, uh, you know, uh, men, all the European monarchs wanted to be Alexander. And, and uh, but what Alexander? Not the pupil of Aristotle, the Alexander that was a universal monarch. And, and that, that we still have. Uh, I mean, the idea of universal monarchy lives on. Democracy has a very short lived uh, lifespan compared to universal monarchy. We may not like universal monarchy, but that's the truth. Uh, building on, on this idea of, of world, world order comes from, I'd be curious to hear how you think world order is going to evolve um, to address the range of daunting challenges that we see in the 21st century, um, including potential catastrophic heating of the planet. Um, where does pluralistic universalist ideas, where do they fit in there? And how could those potentially uh, trickle down and reach actors that were are traditionally not regarded as the most important uh, parts of, of civilization, such as corporations that are now having a huge impact on, on our future. Well, um, we, are, we are on a very low moment, low point of uh, thinking and practicing world order building. So this is a really low moment uh, and uh, there's no question about it. And this has to do with the fact that uh, the old established order is changing, uh, eroding and a new order has not come in yet. Uh, so it also depends on what you mean by world order. World order has a very basic meaning, uh, like uh, it's a given state of affairs of uh, institutions, ideas, and uh, practices that define a particular time of history. 
It doesn't have to be uh, good or bad. It's simply a descriptive thing. But we also have uh, given it a normative meaning that world order is one that produces peace and stability and prosperity. But actually, if you look at the definition of world order, and I have discussed that in many of my, uh, my work, uh, the simple meaning is uh, that the given state of affairs uh, if in terms of norms, institutions, and uh, practices at a particular point of time. Um, but I, I think one should take a middle ground and say that uh, you just don't describe what's out there, but also try to find some sort of a approach, some visible uh, sort of a overarching framework geared towards promoting peace and stability and economic uh, justice and prosperity, depending on your values. So in that sense, we are not uh, in a moment where the old world order has given way to the anything new uh, that is concrete and uh, durable. But there is no question that the old world order is uh, eroded, uh, eroding, and actually is past its prime, at least. Uh, so it can continue for a while. Uh, elements of that will continue. Uh, it's not going to be completely overwhelmed, but it's way past its prime. And it may be also past its uh, what I call use by date, meaning you know it has expired. Uh, the use by date is expired. Um, so in that moment, as we're talking now, the pandemic has not made it easy. Uh, without the pandemic, we probably had made a little more progress, especially after the departure of Trump, but Trump and uh, COVID-19 have posed uh, two major challenges or threats to any kind of transition to a new or a fresh kind of uh, international or world order. Uh, so no prediction is going to be uh, safe. I mean, it's, it's a really, it's hard to make any prediction there. Uh, especially, and nobody has a good track record of making predictions about the future anyway. But I think uh, we can build on certain trends going by uh, what we see around us. And then we can look at, uh, use them to look at what the future, at least the medium term future, if not the long term future may look like. So one obvious point is uh, the shift of economic power. There's no question about it. Uh, so uh, it's not just China, um, it's India as well. India's overall GDP is now higher than Britain's uh, colonial master. And this is uh, uh, really probably un unthinkable 50 years ago. And uh, the global South as a whole uh, is uh, moving up in, uh, in its share of the world's GDP. Uh, it may not have the dramatic impact in terms of prosperity, people's standard of living, but uh, it is creating the foundation of uh, a more uh, diversified uh, economic condition in the world. And particularly the East Asian countries have uh, done quite well. The second thing is that we know that uh, the institutions of multilateralism created after or during World War II uh, are no longer able to cope with the demands of uh, or the challenges of uh, two world order, uh, including uh, not only uh, climate change, also the pandemic uh, and peace and security, uh, partly because they still reflect a distribution of power uh, that was uh, prevalent in the 1940s. So, so you have a security council that reflects the distribution of power of the 1940s and not of the 2000s. Uh, and uh, also, 
some institutions like IMF and World Bank still have a very feudal way of uh, choosing their leadership. Uh, only an American or a French can do this. But there is also a simple question of sheer nature of challenges, uh, which are transnational and uh, and and uh, no no boundaries. And the institutions we have today are mainly intergovernmental. They're still very much beholden to state sovereignty and non-intervention. I, I'm, uh, you know, they don't really, uh, despite all the rhetoric, sovereignty and non-intervention remains fundamental principles. And there is also the, the balance of power politics uh, and tendency of uh, big powers to invent conflicts uh, when the, there's no need for it, uh, whether it's Russia in Ukraine or uh, United States in Iraq and uh, Afghanistan. Uh, it seems like uh, having a conflict, creating a conflict uh, is the way to maintain security of uh, governments or regimes, regime security. So, um, so if you look at uh, the, the institutions are not able to cope with this, economic power is shifting, uh, and uh, and uh, new actors are emerging, including non-state actors. One of the major developments of the last uh, two decades or so is that the, the ordinary people, uh, people on the street, have now a lot more clout to affect debates about uh, foreign policy and world order simply because they have social media that can bypass uh, CNN. There's no CNN effect anymore. I haven't watched CNN in a year. Uh, I got my all my news from social media. Uh, and uh, there is good news and fake news, but uh, you know how to sort out the good from the fake because you don't want to get news from one same source uh, over and over again. From and I don't know in, in Britain you are lucky, but in the United States we don't have news. We have basically opinions, uh, talking heads, people, uh, consultants, and uh, ideologues and uh, officials, uh, ex-officials coming in and saying this is the news. Uh, they're not going out to the streets or uh, places to actually report what's happening. Anyway, uh, so people have more, more say. People are actually making a difference. So the new world order would be therefore much more decentered, less Western-centric, uh, less beholden to the large institutions. Of the, I, I'm a big fan of, the, fan of the UN system. I don't think it will disappear. But it has to compete and coexist, accommodate other types of actors who are into global governance, including the people. And I think um, it is also going to be culturally also less Western-centric, meaning the, the, the hold of Western civilization on people's imagination uh, as, a, and it's not the fault of the Westerners only. Uh, you know, the way academia, education is framed, even in places like uh, India uh, or the Islamic world, it also makes you feel inferior. Uh, that the, the people like, uh, you know, it makes the West looks great and uh, the rest looks like weak, vulnerable. You can be resentful about it, but it's, it's taught in a way that the West looks much more uh, of a superior civilization than it actually was in many ways. Uh, so, so because of that, we have been, we, many people in the world, in the global South have developed a kind of a, inferiority complex, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and that has conditioned their own thinking, uh, which then uh, is a big obstacle to creating kind of a more equitable, just world order. So that is going to change. Cultural diffusion, the rights of the cultural uh, non-West uh, is going to be another new feature of the 
world order. I think the new world order will be much more multi-civilizational. There are dangers to that. Some regimes are using civilization to entrench themselves in, in power. India is a good example of this. Uh, Narendra Modi is doing that. Xi Jinping is doing that. Uh, Erdogan in Turkey is doing that. But that's not the whole story. Uh, there is also a genuine uh, sort of a resentment among even the more progressive people that the Western civilization has got too much credit. Uh, and uh, and, uh, and uh, there should be some rebalancing, uh, despite all the risks that I, I outlined, that it can support authoritarian regimes. So the new world order or uh, the emerging world order, what I call the multiplex world, I don't want to call it a new world order because that's a discredited term like liberalism. The multiplex world is uh, going to be not a multipolar world, multipolarity is defined on the basis of material power, economic power and wealth, you need three powers or more, big powers, great powers uh, to create multipolarity. Uh, and uh, that sort of multipolarity is, uh, is, not, uh, is based on European history again, 19th century, early 20th century European history or European influence world history. That's uh, basically an outdated notion. World order is set not only by power, military or economic, but also by ideas. And, and, uh, and uh, those ideas are very different today than they were in the 19th century. The structure of power is also different. Uh, in, in, in the multipolarity of the 19th century, early 20th century, all Western powers plus Japan in some ways. Uh, now, uh, more and more non-Western powers are coming in, but still, I don't think it's polarity is the way to look at it. Uh, you also bring in more elements to the architecture of world order, uh, ideas, institutions of the kind that never existed in the 19th century, and also the kind of interdependence we have, not based on simple trade, uh, but also finance, production networks, disrupted by COVID, but uh, it'll probably come back when COVID is has eased. And uh, also another uh, new element would be that in the 19th century, multipolarity uh, well, uh, the vast parts of the world were under colonial rule, wasn't it? So it was not so much interdependence as uh, dependence. Uh, and uh, we don't have that kind of colonialism now, maybe in some informal ways. But uh, uh, so this, this world will be very different from when you talk about multipolarity, go back to world before World War II. But this world is not going to be going back to World War II, uh, for better or for worse. And I, Optimists like me think it will be for the better after going through a period of turmoil. But um, again, I could be completely wrong about it. I'm making no predictions here. But it will be a decentered world. It will be a uh, still hierarchical. Distribution of power will remain uneven, but it will be decentered. There will be no global hegemony of uh, a single power, whether it's the United States or China or any, anyone else. Uh, it will be uh, global governance in this world will be more pluralized rather than exclusively driven by big multilateral corporate, uh, multi multilateral institutions. There will be more actors, including people empowered by social media, and uh, it will be multi-civilizational. No single civilization will dominate it. There will be no standard of civilization based on one country, whether it's American or Chinese or uh, or uh, European or Indian. So that's what I call a multiplex world. There'll be no end of history. There'll be a continuous, you know, not only repetition, recycling, but new forms of history will be created. Uh, and also 
there will be no global class of civilization. That's another big issue. Uh, uh, and when we think about world order, as if the end of geopolitics, geopolitical rivalry is going to lead to a class of civilizations, uh, like uh, Huntington predicted. First of all, geopolitics is far from over. And secondly, civilizations always learn from each other and cooperate with each other as much as they fight. Uh, they do both. Uh, and it's not going to be one or the other. Uh, so that's what I call a multiplex world, not a multipolar world or any polar world. Uh, it's a basically a world without a hegemon, still connected, but decentered, where the producers of order or disorder are not just states or great powers, but also a variety of other actors, including non-state actors, institutions, regional institutions, and, and people, uh, people themselves. Thank you so much for uh, talking to us there. I feel like we could, we could go on for many more hours. I feel like we're just kind of scratching the surface of, of this, this topic. But you've spoken recently about thinking about your academic career and the, the career of a, the public intellectual and that, that, that difference. And I was wondering if you could talk about what knowledge holders can do in their, in their position to balance the books or maybe alter the records in terms of global understanding, bringing these ideas that we've been talking about to the fore. Um, and secondly, what can knowledge seekers from a diverse range of backgrounds, you know, maybe maybe students in the, in the more formal sense or, or students in the less formal sense do to update their models for understanding the world we live in today? Well, uh, let me let me make it very clear that I uh, I'm still very much an academic uh, rather than a public intellectual. Uh, so I uh, earn my living uh, being a professor and not giving speeches. Uh, <clears throat> so I do give a lot of speeches when asked, but uh, nothing comparable to the academic writing and teaching and networking I do. But I also strongly believe that uh, all academics have an obligation uh, to reach out to a wider audience uh, to the best of their ability. It's not everybody's cup of tea. There are some people who, some academics who think that's selling out, uh, um, if, especially if you talk to governments. But if you go to uh, talk to people on the street, that's also seen as sometimes welcome, sometimes seen as uh, you know, uh, something that academics do not do too much. Uh, especially if, it, if those public uh, events or uh, activities are partisan. So I still believe that our academics do have an obligation uh, to reach out to a wider audience, uh, whatever they, they feel comfortable with, and, uh, and in which uh, um, they should draw on their knowledge. What I do not do, I don't want to do, is to speak on every topic. Uh, I only want to talk about topics that I have done research on, and they're based on facts. There are some public intellectuals uh, who actually speak wonderfully well, uh, but just, uh, you know, make up their points as they are flying on an aeroplane, at least before COVID, that was the case. So I only talk on uh, things that I have done research on, and, uh, and uh, I think I feel reasonably confident that I have views um, that can at least hold to some people uh, the, in the audience. And I think that we all have obligation. Uh, and I, I am personally uh, normative and rather than political. Uh, normative here means uh, make things better, 
that may conform to some political parties' uh, views or some political groups' views, but I don't really do it through political groups. I join no political party or any uh, advocacy group. Uh, I'm, I haven't joined any advocacy group, even for a good cause. Uh, I believe that um, uh, keeping yourself independent gives you more credibility. And I would be, uh, I have been very happy to talk to some advocacy groups. Uh, for example, uh, the opposition elements that are challenging uh, the regime in Burma. Uh, so I talk to them, uh, I share my views, and uh, when they approach me. But I'm not a um, card holding member of those groups. Uh, so this is basically what I think academics could do. Uh, and uh, there is a uh, academia policy divide, an academia media divide. Uh, and I think it's more uh, visible in uh, some of the media. I mean, I think Britain may be a bit different. Uh, I actually thought I have given more interviews to the BBC radio and television than to CNN uh, since I came to U.S., because here uh, the, the the cable news media is dominated by it's it's basically anti-intellectual. That's what it is. Uh, they don't think academics have anything to say uh, because they're too theoretical, too abstract, and and they would rather have somebody who's a Republican consultant or Democratic consultant rather than an academic who has done years and years and years of work writing books about Afghanistan or Iraq. They don't really get into uh, American mainstream media. Uh, and that is also true of uh, newspapers like New York Times and Washington Post. Uh, so very rarely they look to academics. They have their own people to write uh, and, and, and write columns, for example. So I think uh, short of that, uh, we, uh, whenever we get an opportunity to speak to uh, the media, uh, we should do that. Uh, and uh, we should not simply say, this is not my, my, my turf, no. Uh, especially you think it's a new area. So I have actually given recent interviews on Myanmar, Prague, Burma. That's my uh, Southeast Asian specialty. And I have talked about world order, uh, but uh, it's not my bread and butter. Uh, I don't earn my living doing that. Uh, most cases, you don't get paid at all. But I think there's a lot of other ways you can do it. I mean, academic networks are uh, very useful. I mean, you know, um, we should not underestimate the impact of this profession because we teach in the classrooms. Uh, we condition, we can influence uh, the minds of a younger generation, hopefully in a positive way. We can do it also in a negative way. Uh, and, uh, and that is, uh, if the media doesn't look at it, so be it, um, you know, or, uh, uh, but we still have, would have influence. So if I teach like uh, 200 people uh, in a five-year period, and those 200 people are drawn from all over the world, uh, that's, that's fantastic. Uh, uh, those people will uh, come back with a different view of the world. I recently gave a series of lectures uh, to a Japanese um, university, and uh, basically uh, six, six lectures over four days. I was supposed to go there and give these lectures, and COVID, of course, prevented me. Uh, so I get them online. And, uh, you know, you'll be surprised that eight of the students in the Japanese university were from mainland China. Uh, so this is 
despite all we hear about China-Japan rivalry and all, those are graduate students studying in Japan, mainland China, sometimes not with a very good English. And some of the comments I got back, and one of them I tweeted, if you look at my social media, you'll see it, that uh, one student uh, wrote that uh, as a Chinese growing up in China, I'm so used to uh, influenced by Chinese patriotic education. She used the word patriotic. And my uh, views are uh, biased. And after uh, listening to your lectures on world order, I think of the world in very different ways. Now, I'm not saying that makes the whole difference, but at least if I can change the views or condition the, or expose them to an alternative way of thinking. And these are Chinese students studying in Japan, which is itself very interesting. Uh, that's my contribution. And sooner or later, this will add up in a long academic career of uh, three decades. I think I might have, might have made my contribution. I have written about 100 op-eds. I have consulted uh, multilateral institutions. Uh, on, I was just a member of the UN Secretary General's uh, thought leaders group when uh, he was drafting or his staff were drafting the common agenda, our common agenda report. So I put my views into it. Multiplex world. He didn't, may not use these terms, but a lot of the ideas speak to this idea of global governance. We have to get people on board and, uh, and we have to pay more attention to regionalism. Uh, we have to look at transnational issues. So, so we can contribute uh, to uh, these avenues as well. Uh, and uh, with uh, the proliferation of media. Uh, so if you do a recording like this, you could uh, have a lot of people listen to it. By the way, uh, a month ago, I was asked to give a lecture, online lecture to a, uh, to a university in uh, Latin America. I don't to tell the name. And I said, uh, I have a Zoom fatigue. I just don't want to give another lecture. Uh, so I asked them to actually watch the recording of my last visit to UCL, the one that is actually online. Uh, and, uh, and, uh, and that works out pretty well. Uh, so it was uh, some of that we're talking about actually were also discussed there in, in a slightly uh, truncated way. Um, the idea of a world order multiplex. So that's also very useful. People can watch things with their cell phone the way they could not watch. Um, I could not watch any lectures given in London uh, until I was like, uh, what, 25 years old. And that is, uh, you know, even recorded lectures, not to mention real-time lectures. So, so just make the most of it. So if academics can contribute to uh, networks, uh, audio platforms, podcasts, webcasts, uh, so be it. I gave a lecture recently to Indonesia. Um, um, they're a kind of political science international group. There were 1,600 people in the Zoom. Uh, it's, uh, and uh, half of them from Indonesia. About a, and uh, because Zoom had no capacity, more than 1,000, they had to have YouTube. And uh, I think there are 500 from all over the world. Uh, so it was, I don't get paid. I don't get... Uh, uh, published in New York Times, but honestly, I'm very happy with that kind of stuff. I did get published in New York Times in the past, uh, but uh, I think it's too much work and too, too uncertain. Uh, to, to the kind of effort you get into to get published there can be better spent in giving 
an interview like this. Well, thank you, Amitav. And yeah, I hope that we're doing our own small part to get the word out that there is real insight, real wisdom to be found in the Academy. And thank you so much for joining us today and contributing to this conversation that we're, we're kind of cultivating. So it's really been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in to Imperfect Utopias or Bust, Global Governance Futures. If you liked this content, please do leave us a comment and subscribe. If you're new to the show and you want to get a list of our favorite books, other resources, listen to past shows, and to join our community, go to ucl.ac.uk forward slash global dash governance.